It's episode 49 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program, we welcome back Tim Brown. He's the head of typography at Adobe and has just released a new book called Flexible Typesetting. We're going to talk about best practices when designing with type. Tim, it's good to have you back. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I love your podcast. Oh, that's wonderful. I appreciate you saying that. How have you been? You have a busy day today. I do. I'm all jittery because the book is launching today. <laughs> that's exciting. And I appreciate you taking uh, just a minute. I guess this will be uh, about a week ago for uh, people listening because we're recording a little bit ahead of time. But the book is out. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. So uh, what do you got on what do you got on the on the schedule today? If you've got you got a book release, you got all sorts going on, I would imagine. Yeah. So um, one of the things that a book part is really good at is helping with the marketing of your book. Um, so a while back, they put me in touch with a contractor they work with. Um, her name is Leslie. I uh, forget her last name at the moment. Oh, uh, Zaikis, Z-A-I-K-I-S, something like that. Uh, and she's amazing. Uh, and she gave me this whole plan of like you know, what to do. And part of that is just I mean, it's, it's sort of stuff I was thinking about already. Like I, I know a bunch of people, I should tell them all about the book, but it, but it put it in such a like sequence of events. Yeah. And I'm, so I've been yeah. following that all. And, and so today's got a whole big bunch of stuff lined up, you know, make sure I tell everybody and the different, you know, social channels that I'm in. And, um, I've been trying to do a good job of, um, like explaining to people why the book might be useful. Yeah. And, uh, my, actually my favorite way to do that has been to, to tweet about these book pairings. So like huh. why my book goes nicely with some other books, because it's really fun to give other, like I'm getting a lot of attention right now. And to be able to like share that with other folks is really, uh, it's fun, especially because I value so many of these other books. That's great. Yeah. Well, there is a, uh, a book apart. That's a really good job. I'm a really big fan of all the stuff that they do. Um, I'll tell you, like marketing a book is probably different than when I wrote my book 20 years ago. <laughs> you know what? I, you know what I did is I went to bookstores and did readings. Uh, I don't think that wow. happens as much anymore, uh, considering the dearth of bookstores in the world and, and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, no, that's geez, that's all. There was I went mean, so, email list was the closest to like digital marketing we could do. I mean, it was, it was a long time ago. Um, wow. Uh, but anyway, hey, thanks for uh, being back on the show. The, I, I looked it up. The last time you were here was in October of uh, 2016. It was um, actually the last show we recorded before the U.S. election. So a lot has happened in these uh, yeah. in the intervening <laughs> time. Um, but the big news then was um, the variable fonts. That's why we were kind of we we're getting on getting on the podcast to talk about the the announcement that the variable font standard had shipped, I guess, or had been ratified, or whatever. Uh, whatever happens to standards had just happened, and um, and it was pretty exciting. But in this past whatever eighteen months or so, it has been. Uh, it, it feels like a lot has happened. It's like shipping and browsers, and there's all kinds of examples out there and things. The variable font stuff is really going. It's amazing. It really is. People are pushing the boundaries with that technology in really, really interesting ways. And uh, I'm just so I'm thrilled about how much attention it has brought to flexibility in web design. Like it, it's it's getting people to think about uh, like like making stuff. It's looks like the book I, that I just wrote isn't really about variable fonts. Variable fonts are a part of what I'm talking about, but the attention that variable fonts are generating in, in, in flexible typography, um, it, it really can, created some, some good conditions for my book. And I think a lot of people will, um, 
will will enjoy it because it kind of like they might look at the book because of all this buzz around variable fonts, but by reading the book, they'll better understand like the context for variable fonts and like when to use them for some reasons, you know, and why. Yeah. And maybe, maybe we'll back up just a little bit and talk a bit about, uh, as kind of a refresher, the idea there being that a font file, rather than having all the exact specifications for the rendering of a font is more like, it's sort of a transformation into a font file as an algorithm that contains uh, more of the spirit of the design, but that all of the various elements, or I guess as many of the elements as the designer is willing to sort of um, make variable, so uh, are, are flexible and can be adjusted via CSS so that you can do things like change the, the, the weight of the font from very like a hairline to a very black, uh, ultra-heavy version. Um, just by selecting stuff inside the CSS with a single file to kind of reduce bandwidth and increase flexibility and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to put it. It's a pretty remarkable amount of flexibility that it, that it brings to, um, to the, to the practice of, of typography, of, of setting a page and, um, and the things you can do, especially if you consider that the CSS properties themselves can be dynamic based on containers and just mm-hmm. like javascript you can start any, just anything it's 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 really remarkable it really is and especially some of the display oriented um, things that people are doing with variable fonts and the different arrangements that people are doing with animated variable fonts um, there's a woman named mandy michael who's been doing a lot of code pen experiments where she takes variable fonts and sets them in you know arranges them in ways that um, are really striking and use the features of those fonts in like art directed ways. Mm. You know, mm. the, the, the most, it's the most attention grabbing stuff about variable fonts is really the kind of wacky axes. Yeah. Um, and, 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 um, but, and so I don't talk a whole lot about that in my book. I think that stuff deserves a book of its own. I think maybe a book isn't even the right format for exploring that stuff because it is so dynamic and so, um, so visual. Um, what I think variable fonts and that kind of algorithmic thinking about a, a font, uh, the, the reason that I, the way that I put it in context in my book is that it's, it's part of, setting a, a solid foundation for all that other expressive work. Like if you, if you nail your typesetting, it's like, it's like the, the, the baseline in a great song. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. it's like, you know, the proportions of a, of a great room that you then fill with really interesting personal stuff. I don't know. I'm, these aren't great analogies, but you know what I mean? It's like a, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones back there behind the drum kit, just like laying down that beat while everybody else is <laughs> doing their own thing, but uh, yeah. holding it all together. Yeah, no, I like it. It's a good analogy. So, yeah, actually, that's true. I had I had not considered when you were mentioning uh, uh, Mandy Michael's work, and I'll link to that on uh, in the show notes, the idea that, of course, you could start to do like those those properties of the fonts can be animated over time and, and go through transitions and all that sort of stuff. It's crazy. I'll point out... Um, as I was sort of uh, getting ready to, for, for us to talk, I was playing around with uh, v-fonts.com. Um, and there's another one called play.typedetail.com. Yeah. Um, those things, they're, they're insane. They're st- like the, the stuff that you can do is 
uh, as stuff we dreamed about just a few years ago. It's, it's really impressive. So links to all that in the show notes, go play around with that stuff. Um, the question is, sh- uh, for this, should be, we, should we be using them today? So, um, I looked up on, uh, can I use.com variable fonts? It looks like we're at about 70%, um, of, uh, and I, I'm not entirely sure how they calculate all their, their audience numbers and things like that, uh, because it's different for every website. I understand, but, um, it feels like it's getting there, like with modern browser updates and things like that, that, uh, we can, we're pretty close to being able to rely on that being built into the, to the user agents that people are, are using today. Totally. Yep. You can definitely, and especially with like CSS, uh, the ad supports rule where you only apply certain aspects of your, of your presentational styles if the browser supports those things, I mean, it's really, uh, it's kind of a no brainer that you should get started with this stuff. Now there, there, there's a difference though, between just using variable fonts, getting them actually live in your page yeah. and, and taking advantage of the flexibility that they offer and, 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 and art directing with, you know, those variable design spaces in mind. So, like one thing that you can't do right now, I was talking about this uh, yesterday with um, my friend Scott Kellum. Um, one thing that you can't do right now is, I think we talked a little bit about this on the last episode, but there's there's this idea that I've been calling CSS locks, which is like if you have, um, let's say, uh, the example that I use in, in the blog post about CSS locks is line height. If you have a narrow paragraph, you want the line height to be tight. Yeah. And if you have a wide paragraph, you want to loosen that line height. And so a paragraph on the web flexes. It, it's both narrow and wide, depending on whatever viewport it's in. Mm. Um, so you have to make that line height flex dynamically between two limits. And so a lock in CSS is about establishing those limits and telling an element to flex between two values. So are you saying sort of like, this is the minimum you should, you should not get smaller than this. This is the maximum. Don't ever go this, this high. Uh, and in between, this is kind of the rate at which I think it should change. Yes, that's exactly right. And you should theoretically be able to do that same thing with axes in a variable font. Mm. So let's say a variable font has a a width, uh, I'm sorry, a weight axis, like you described earlier, hairline, very, very bold. Maybe you want that variable font to change its weight depending on some condition in the browser, but you don't want it to get so extreme. You don't want it to get to that hairline or, or to that heaviest, heaviest bold. You want it to be limited somewhere in, in the mid-range. Um, there should be a way to do that, but it's hard to do with CSS right now. You, you, you kind of need JavaScript for it. So, so there are things like that that are still evolving about how we use variable fonts, but as a file format, they're widely supported and supports only growing. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, again, it just reiterates this idea of all of the decisions that both a type designer and a page designer would be making, uh, in, in traditional design where you're, you're sitting in front of literally like a sheet of paper. Right. And, um, and they're like probably selecting different, um, different variants of a typeface. Like I'm thinking of like, 
you know, Myriad, the Adobe typeface Myriad, which would have Myriad display, Myriad text, Myriad caption that are literally different designs, tweaks to, de- to the design, still maintaining the flavor, the, the overall aesthetic of the, of the typeface, but for different contexts, right? For, and putting those all into one and then letting the, and, and essentially giving that, seeding that control over to the page designer to say, right, I want you to, you know, when you, when you put them in these contexts, here's how it, it should all adjust. Uh, it is really all very algorithmic. It is, and it used to happen in our brains, and now it's <laughs> got to happen in the work. It actually has to live. That brain has to live in the work. Yeah, which yeah. is just wild. Like, and and it's especially, I mean, part of the reason I wrote this book is to have conversations because it. I want more people to be where I'm at with thinking about this stuff, so that we can talk about what's really confusing to me which is things like, you know, if you think about that algorithm and choosing the right, even just the right variation of a font to be using for a particular text element in a particular context, what's a good variation of this typeface? Well, that's just one element. You have entire compositions full of different chunks of text that do different jobs. Some of them are grabbing people's attention. Some of them are there to be read. Some of them are are there to be studied and, you know, poured over and digested. Some of them are there to get you around from place to place. Like how do all of those things relate? Not only do they flex independently, but they're part of a composition where the spaces in between them and the relative um, weight, the contrast among them is, is all really important. And how does that stuff flex? What rules do you put in place to make sure that those contrast relationships are still relevant to make sure that uh, as a, as your user's experience gets more or less focused, that they have appropriate uh, contrast in front of them. All that stuff still has to be figured out. And like you can kind of get a handle on all that by really understanding how to write CSS today, but it's hard to see what you're doing in CSS. So I think a big gap, right now is design tooling. Design tooling mm. is built for static media and even the most cutting edge stuff, the way it's approaching flexible media is by helping people talk about the work more easily and do the work more quickly so that they can talk about it. But it's all still static work. It's, it's you know, the design tools are not rooted in flexibility yet. And they need to be for us to be able to see what we're doing. And what is uh, what is your complaint with with, with CSS? Like right, just being there in a text editor? Is it there's just so many now variables to that, that you have control over that it is just the iteration of of to do work that is really appropriate. I mean, you can make websites very simply, and that's one of the best things about the web is that you can just get started. But to make something that is very sensitively designed with CSS. Um, and, you know, performs well and is accessible and, you know, all that good stuff. It's a little complicated, especially for people who are not comfortable coding. Mm. And I, I think that it's an, it's definitely an advantage to people making stuff on the web to know how to code. Uh, that's why I think it's good that schools teach designers how to code. I think that's very important to understand the material that you're working with. I think it's really hard to, make visual decisions when you're looking at code and you know, it's kind of like 
I, I don't know what a good analogy for this is, but it's, you know, you're, you're, it's almost like the difference between using a laptop and an iPad. Um, yeah, yeah. when you're working on a laptop, right, you got your fingers on the keys and the screen is in front of you up ahead somewhere. And if you're really good at that, if you're comfortable with that, it's like muscle memories. It's really easy to type. Uh, but look at kids when they're learning, right? The iPad is way more intuitive. You can just touch the stuff. And that's what better design tools would do for making websites today. It would let people like actually interact with the decisions they're making. Like mm. it would show them the decisions that they have to make mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and help them make those decisions. And it's, you know, you can do it in code, but I think a lot of people would choose to do it in a more intuitive way. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I'm, I'm thinking about the experience that I often have. Uh, I, I, I make a fair amount of keynote presentations, right? I spent, spent a lot of time in that application uh, over the last years, many years, that it has really been like wired in deep into my brainstem. You know what I mean? Like there is yeah. that, that idea of like opening up an application, having a vague idea of what I want to do and having the application just disappear and like get into flow. And I'm like, time is gone and everything is gone. And I don't think I'm using all the, the shortcut keys and I'm just, it, it is, you know, the equivalent of playing a musical instrument, right? Yeah. The, the instrument itself disappears and it is just a performance. And, I, and it feels like that. I get that. And that I think just comes from the, the hundreds or thousands of hours of practice. And, and I would imagine there are people that, that feel the same way. I'm almost certainly writing code in their, in their editor of choice. And like, it's just flowing and you're back and forth and you're like the error and iterating. And then I have it and here it is and, and all of that. But, um, but yeah, I think there is this, this middle ground of like, okay, we have all of this variability in CSS now. And, but you really want to get into this, like, like, with a couple of seconds iteration back and forth, try, look, try, look, try. Ah, oh, that's what I'm after. Right. Nudge, 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 that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and, and we just don't have that tooling. We still, we still don't um, have that kind of tooling for, especially for new technologies like this. Yeah, you're right. Mm. I mean, you look at, look at, look at the calculations that are part of that CSS locks post that I wrote. I mean, it's a simple concept. We talked about it just a few minutes ago on the show and it was yeah. pretty clear what we were talking about. But if you look at the code, you can't even tell what you're doing. <laughs> like you really, I, like I look at the, the, the code that I wrote and I'm like, what do I even adjust? And right. if I change this number, what's it going to affect about how that's visually working? Yeah. Well, I have that experience with code I've written. Like who wrote this? Who was, I? <laughs> who, or, or more accurately, who was I when I wrote this? <laughs> I think right. that's what it comes down to. Um, I have a bunch of uh, more questions uh, about all of this, but uh, I want to take a little break first, Tim. And uh, thank a sponsor. And it is again this week. Uh, this episode is brought to us by Linode. And again, uh, like I said last week, this is a, a sponsor that I'm thrilled to have because I've been a user for a long time uh, and I love the service. Uh, Linode gives you a suite of powerful hosting options for having a virtual server like a Linux box in the cloud for as little as $5 a month, which I think is remarkable. Um, you can uh, go to Linux, linode.com and uh, get a server up and running in under a minute. Uh, and I have had this experience, and it really is that simple. You probably know virtual servers and stuff like that from like Amazon, AWS, and all that kind of stuff. One of the differences, one of the reasons that, I, that I've always really liked Linode is that they have uh, remarkable customer support. 
uh, that you can get a hold of them 24-7. And, you know, I mean, try to call somebody at Amazon and see if you can get them to help you debug what you're working on with your with your private server. Um, you can email them. You can call them. You can chat over IRC. They know how important it is to get the help that you need. And they have a suite of amazing guides and support documentation. Uh, they can give you, ref- give you the reference that you need whenever you need it. Uh, they have a really intuitive control panel for handling all your servers, however many you want. You can, like, cluster them together and boot various ones, resize them, take snapshots, clone, backups, all of that kind of stuff, just a couple of clicks. Uh, and they've got two-factor authentication, which is super important as well. So uh, Linode is great for hosting large databases, running mail servers, operating VPNs, uh, running Docker containers, hosting Git servers, uh, hosting Minecraft servers is what I do with it, uh, and lots, lots more. So they have some uh, fantastic pricing options. Uh, like I said, you could start with a gig of RAM on your server for uh, as little as $5 a month, which is nothing. You can get high memory plans starting with 16 gigabytes. They just go up and on and on and on. Get some crazy powerful stuff. As a listener of the show, if you sign up at linode.com slash presentable, that's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com presentable slash presentable. Uh, you not only will be supporting the show, uh, but you'll get $20 of credit in your Linode plan. So with that one gig of RAM plan, you get four free months. It's crazy. And there's a seven-day money-back guarantee. So nothing to lose. Go to linode.com slash presentable to learn more. Sign up. Take advantage of $20 credit. Thanks to Linode for supporting Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right. So, Tim, I want to know a little bit more about uh, some of the control that we have here. Because everything that we have been talking about is about page designers, web designers, uh, doing design with typography with an unbelievable amount of control that they have now over that. But at the same time, you kind of echo a philosophy that has been around since the beginning of the web. And that is even with all of this control that we are gaining over our web designs, the the practice of doing web design is one of one of letting go of control ultimately. Right. So it reminded me as I was sort of looking through this of that old, old um, post by John Alsop, the Tao of web design. You remember that? Yeah, of course. Dude, that was 18 years ago that he oh, wrote that. Uh, yeah, and, and he goes into this, like, uh, into this deep sort of philosophical uh, musing on how um, letting go of control ultimately helps us transcend and, and create products that are ultimately uh, the most beautiful that they can be, the most responsive, the most um, appropriate for their intended audience. Uh, but typography has really always been traditionally about like this exact science, right? Measurements of like tiny increments and how adjusting the line height or letter spacing just a fraction totally changes the color of a paragraph of a page of, of a whole publication. And you just sort of, um, so, so, so sort of accepting that, like we're, we're now letting go of even the, the most minute typographical controls kind of, kind of difficult. Yeah, it is. It's very difficult. I, I mean, part of the, so first of all, John also followed me on Twitter yesterday and I was like, Oh man, it made my day. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's so exciting. Um, but, but so, you're totally right. Like there is that, that friction. Um, the part of the reason that I wrote this book was to talk exactly about that friction and to talk to people who work on the web, sort of people who are on both sides of that drama, right? People who work on the web, who are comfortable relinquishing control, who have had good results making websites that, um, are, you know, um, uh, fluid and uh, responsive and, um, even at, by sacrificing some of that traditional control, but also to speak to people who do print work, 
who've resisted the web uh, because because they can't do work that looks as good uh, because you know they don't have the kind of um, I don't want to keep saying control. It's more like the way that I've put it in the past is um, uh, in, in, not intent. That's Jared Spool's word. I, I've used some different <laughs> word for it, <laughs> uh, but it's but it's uh, it's kind of like you know designers are are paid for a reason. We 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 decide that things should look one way and not some other way because it makes a difference in the user experience and it makes a difference in, you know, it makes a difference for our business. It's, it's more authentic. It's, it's more, um, appropriate for uh, a given kind of content or a, a given reader. And so like, I think the way around this isn't to say that, you know, you can never control anything. And it isn't to say that you can, uh, that you must have absolute control like we've had in print. I mean, there, there have always been variables in, in printed work as well. You never knew. I mean, people would use magnifying glasses and re- have reading glasses and they would choose different formats of a uh, paperback book because they mm-hmm. like one or the other or right. whatever. Um, but, but it's just, it's much more um, dynamic now. And there's, there's a whole lot more different scenarios where text has to work. And I think that, uh, so the argument that I make in the book is that it's not that you have to give up control. It's that you have to reorient yourself as a designer. Uh, you have to be one with the reader. You have to work from their perspective. And so there, in doing that, all of the decisions you make are relative to that reader. And where you, where you, let go is if the reader has opinions, those override yours as a designer. It has to work for the reader and they want things the way that they want them. So if you work from their perspective and the book gets very practically into what that means, thinking about like people's default font sizes on their browsers and, and their devices, right? People are used to what they're used to on their very personal devices. And if your thing does not look familiar to them. It stand, you know, it, it doesn't stand as good a chance of being successful. It has to look familiar, um, but it also has to stand out, which is why it's valuable to be able to have a little bit of control to say, you know, these are the fonts that I want to use because they're authentic to my brand. Um, these are the, uh, you know, uh, sizes and boldness and margins because this is what creates a pleasant reading experience. It's not just text slapped into a viewport. Um, that stuff is important, but it is fundamentally optional now. And what's the, you know, the, the argument that I make in the book is that it has to be worth opting into. You have to do a really good job of that stuff mm. or people will just, you know, they'll push the button on their browser and homogenize it. Mm. They'll put it in reading mode. Yeah. Yep. 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 And the, uh, you know that's interesting. It, it reminds me of a conversation a number of episodes ago on this on this podcast about Google AMP and the homogenization of mobile web pages uh, with the intent of increasing performance, um, which it has done very well, but at the expense of every page looks the same, right? Like mm-hmm. it, literally, um, 
uh, in an effort to get things to load quickly. And there's, there's essentially like almost a standardized template for how every, and, and admittedly, these are all generally pages of the same type with the same intent and the same sort of audience use case, which is news articles, right? Top of the, top of the search results for, um, for something in the current events. And it's all amp pages. They all look the same. They all have different logos at the top. That's about it. Uh, but it is also, uh, to your point about, um, a typeface associated with a brand and giving a specific set of meanings along with it, uh, you know, using Google amp has allowed a lot of these like so-called fake news websites to appear legitimate because they look just as good as the BBC or the New York times when, when the page pops up because it is, Oh, look, it's got some, some hand behind the typesetting essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's scary can be. Yeah. But, um, anyway, I find that, I find that interesting from, it feels like you could go down this logical conclusion of like, we could refine typography so, so much for, for a specific use case that there'd be, that we'd get done. We would fully optimize it. And this is what a news article should look like. And this is what a Wikipedia page should look like or whatever, like, you know, uh, whatever, whatever the various, uh, different types of search results and end up with. We have identified the best possible typographic treatment, uh, set everything up as variables with user control for people who have different um, different needs around that stuff, and we're done. We don't need to do typography anymore. But obviously, that's not a scenario. Like I, I think there is still what we're getting at. What what is the additive value of the the different type choices we make? Mm-hmm. Eventually, once you get a lot of that utilitarian aspects of this nailed down, like if if it works, if it is reader oriented. Um, if it's, and by works, I mean like, you know, looks good in all kinds of contexts. If it is flexible, uh, if you are working from the reader's perspective and if you are caring about decisions that go missing, so like all of your fallback decisions so that this thing essentially just works really well, then the differences are all about aesthetics, you know, like, well, why do people wear different clothes? Why do people decorate their houses differently? It's important. It's very personal. It makes you memorable. Um, and, and people have, you know, value that immensely. I mean, that, that's, it makes people spend money. I think it makes people insecure as well. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of times choosing a pairing of typefaces is a bit like choosing a, a pairing of wine with your dinner at a fancy restaurant where you're like, I am going to order the third least expensive <laughs> bottle. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I feel that way a lot, like on purely on the aesthetic side now, like the, there are, I, I've heard people say, why do we need more typefaces? There's thousands of them out there. And like, yeah, well, um, uh, new use cases come up all the time, but also trends change and aesthetics change. And like, and people just keep exploring and experimenting and iterating and covering old ground and reinterpreting. And like, I love all of that stuff at the same time. Oh my God, it's overwhelming. <laughs> Totally. It totally is. And that, like, so, so the way that I try and address this uh, insecure feeling in the book uh, is by telling people like, yeah, there's a zillion fonts, but start with typesetting because that simplifies things so greatly. There are so few typefaces that are good for body text that narrows down the field already. And then, you know, once you've found some good ones for body text, then work on finding which ones are appropriate for your project. And where do you look to, to figure that out? First of all, like how do you tell that a typeface is good for body text? There are a few qualities that you can look for. And then 
of these body text typefaces, which one's appropriate for my project? Well, look at other subject matter in your area. Look at other things that express the same tone as what you're trying to express. Look around to see what people are familiar with reading in a certain subject. You know, if it's, is it a science text? What do other, you know, research papers, science research papers look like? What do textbooks look like? What do websites look like that focus on your subject matter? And you kind of riff off of that because, I mean, that, that's what helps you strike a balance between something that feels familiar and something that is unique that people will remember you for is to, you know, you have to do a little bit of, of studying, uh, but making your decision is way easier if you just narrow down the number of typefaces you have to deal with. I totally get it, though. The wine analogy is really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so with like any creative pursuit, your advice is copy until your own voice emerges. Just copy, yeah. pe- copy, the, copy the, the people who are great uh, until you can figure out how they got that way and how you can start to approach that and then sort of see, see where your own voice kind of emerges. I mean, that's how years and years ago when I was a kid, I learned how to play guitar. Just picked yeah. my favorite guitar player and learned every single song. And, um, and finally, I was like, oh, that's how that works. And, and, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me tell you something, something I'm thinking uh, in my Adobe work right now. Um, so I'm, I'm talking with a whole bunch of other teams and um, uh, talking a lot with Adobe's uh, what they call Sensei. I don't know if you know, I don't know if that was that initiative got started while you were still around. No, I didn't. But but I've but that's the machine learning stuff that's going on behind the. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I've been talking with folks on that team uh, a bunch, and um, a concept that I that I've been trying to um, think about and and get everybody thinking about is this idea of finding a balance as like you know because where where this is all leading is of course. Um, artificial intelligence and helping people make decisions, right? Um, and so what sort of conditions go into that decision-making? Um, this, this idea of copying someone else's work is interesting because, you know, what if uh, your tools help you with that? What if your tools were to say, well, so here's what you're, you know, you're doing this in, in, in your project. Here's, how this other person has made this decision. I think that that's one ingredient and there are a bunch of ingredients that could go into that sort of a balance in, in that decision-making. I think what you need is a combination of machine learned knowledge about how most people do a certain thing in design work mixed with how you often do a certain thing. So like personal preferences and then a third ingredient could be a third party, like somebody popular or somebody, uh, you know, some tutorial um, algorithm. Uh, if you mix that stuff, you get this, you know, you could get this balance of, well, here's how it's commonly done. And here's what I prefer. So it's not just making a copy of what's commonly done. And here's the direction that I want to go in this other person. I want it to kind of be like me, but more like them also. So, you know, you can, I feel like by, you know, a a lot of the machine learning stuff I've seen in the world focuses on what's popular, what's commonly done. And that's going to produce mediocre results. You have to also think about um, making it more personal and, you know, 
learning about individual people, but, but also helping them grow in directions that they are interested in, like by copying each other. Interesting. You know, it's, it's hard to sort of speculate uh, and, and visualize how a machine learning algorithm uh, could be kind of fed, fed all of the, the data it would need with the correction that it would need to, to output, to start outputting interesting, I guess, variable fonts plus, plus typesetting qualities. But, but I, but I imagine it could, and then feed that into a tool that kind of gives you guidelines or, or, or kind of, um, wrote, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of constraints and say like, you know, go off in this direction or off in this direction, more like this, less like that. Uh, yeah. but it could be, yeah, that could be super powerful. There've been, I haven't seen any, uh, around type, Type design, typography specifically. There's been a couple in in web design that have sort of approximated some of that stuff. But um, but yeah, do you know of anybody doing research into that right now, or any interesting stuff going on there? Yeah, I mean, well, so there's the folks I'm talking to here at Adobe. Right. right. I, I had a I had a great conversation a couple of years ago with John Gold, who works at Airbnb. Um, that that dude is really smart. Um, you know, I, I, Scott Kellum. I was just talking with him yesterday. He made a good point. Um, about how, you know, this Scott is, I, I can't keep up with him. He's, he's thinking like two steps ahead. He's, he's talking about how, like, you know, what happens after these algorithms are all in place? Like what is design going to be like then? And what will people need to care about? So like, you know, pay attention to Scott, pay attention to John Gold. Uh, and, and hopefully I can make stuff happen at Adobe. I, another thing I'm trying to do with the, the sort of conversations that I'm having with, with researchers at Adobe is um, make it more public. Like a lot of that just happens in meetings. And I think, um, I think we should share more of that publicly because I think, you know, part of what's going to make this all better is the community. Like if we just do this stuff in isolation and release a product every six months or a year, right. I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just not comfortable with that still, even having been at Adobe for seven <laughs> years. Or something. I, I, I like, I want to make things and put them into the world immediately. That's why I was happy that, you know, pr- practice became its own thing. I haven't kept that site up as much as I would have liked. Uh, but you know, there's, there's a future for that sort of content. Um, and, and so maybe, you know, maybe there's a way to get a R and D stuff, uh, you know, blogged about, um, I'm sort of interested in that at the moment. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, Apple had, had done did that last year. Interestingly, considering their you know historic notable secrecy around everything, but starting to publish AI research from the the people that are working internally at at Apple, um, and I think it has as much to do with this desire to you know share and and um, and develop the the ideas in the community, but also frankly with recruiting. Like you can't get the best AI yeah. researchers if you're not going to let them share their work and publish their research, you know? So, so there's yep. a lot to that. Um, uh, just to kind of finish up here, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, one of the things you do throughout the chapters of the book is, is to use an example of a website that you build kind of in real time through the book, which is your local volunteer fire department's website. Are, do, are you, are you a volunteer firefighter? I, I am. Do you, yeah. go, you go running into burning buildings? Well, I haven't yet. Uh, I'm still learning. I'm worried I'm about learning. you. <laughs> no, but I, but I, um, I, you know, I train and I support the department. Um, it's really, really been a learning experience. It's great. And it's great to be a part of my community. You know, I'm a remote worker, which I've always valued. Um, but it, 
it isolates me from my neighbors. And mm-hmm. so, you know, joining a, a local community group like this has been very rewarding. That's impressive. That's impressive. Well, you keep uh, working on the, I guess, what getting cats out of trees, and then you can start. Running, oh my God! Running into oh, what? what? One of the one of the old timers in the department was telling me a story when I first joined. He was telling me a story about when he first became chief. He's not chief anymore, <laughs> but his first call was a cat in a tree. It was February. It was the <laughs> middle of the night, and he went out to. The, he tells this story. I can't tell it with the same color. But a truck turned over. He had to get mutual aid. It's like 3 a.m. in February. The cat won't come down out of the tree. They wouldn't let him hear the end of it. <laughs> it was hilarious. Ah, that's fantastic. Well, uh, stay safe out there, Tim. Um, Will do. Appreciate what you do for the community. Uh, the book is called Flexible Typesetting. You can see more at FlexibleTypesetting.com. Uh, you're writing at tbrown.org. Uh, let's see. We, we, we got you at Tim, at Tim Brown on Twitter. Um, and at, yeah, and, oh, and you have at t- typesetting. Hey, look at that. Yes, nice. Yeah, yeah. So follow at typesetting on Twitter as well. Any, uh, anywhere else? A book apart, a book apart and also, uh, Adobe follow their stuff. You know, it's, uh, if I could just say a couple of words uh, about a book apart, working with them has been just amazing. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the marketing stuff earlier, but the entire editorial process was so supportive. Uh, Karen Litherland edited, my book and to have someone with that sort of skill care about the book as much as I did, uh, really, really made it better. I had a couple of excellent technical editors, Ray Schwartz, who's a friend of mine. I worked with him at Vassar uh, and Juliet Cesar, who um, wrote another book, uh, designing the editorial experience and has been president of the AIGA. Uh, super, super smart people. Um, uh, it, 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 you know, this book is really, uh, team effort. And, um, you know, if it was just me, it would not be, it wouldn't be live. <laughs> it's, it's really, I, I really appreciate what a book part does. Catella do running the show over there, her enthusiasm, um, and her, you know, her, her just patience. I, you know, I've been working on this book for two or three years. Um, so a lot of effort went into it and I really appreciate what they're doing over there. Yeah, talented group of people. Well, congrats again on the book, Tim, and thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Jeff. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean, and this was Presentable. Presentable.